could open the floodgates and let tons of people in here. But if you're familiar with the Midwest, you've got a maybe a three minute chair ride and then a 30 second ride down. Now, who wants to stand in line for 20 minutes just to take that little run? It, frustrating. Your lodge is packed. You can't get a burger. You can't get a beer. Nobody's happy with that. I often look at the human toll also on our staff. And we really saw that in the first year of the pandemic. Um, we had to, you know, cut back like everybody else with indoor capacities and do these things. And you could just see how it really wore down people. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. We've heard an awful lot about what went wrong in Ohio last ski season with all of Vale's properties. But today, I wanna look at what went right and where in the state. First though, a reminder to visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. If you just found the podcast because you're hungry for some off-season content, I am so happy to have you. But I want you to know this, The podcast is just a small part of the storm. The heart of this whole operation is the email newsletter, where I explore the world of lift serve skiing all year long. This is an amazing time to join because June is going to be bursting, not only with six podcast episodes, including this one, but with MegaPass partner announcements. And I will have that news for you first, along with full breakdowns of which mountains have signed where and why that matters. For more frequent updates, you will want to follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. All right, before we go to Ohio, let's talk about Mountain Gazette. Have you subscribed yet? If not, why not? I'm telling you, having this thing on your coffee table is going to change your whole day. Let me tell you about Mountain Gazette 197 which is heading to your mailbox in the coming weeks. The spring 2022 issue is going to be stuffed with the kind of picks and stories you will not find anywhere else. Here's what I mean. The new issue features a stunning photo gallery of outdoor culture in Kiev, Ukraine before the Russian invasion. There is a story about mountain town soccer prospects and a photo gallery by the one and only Jimmy Chin Yes, that's right, the Oscar Award winner makes his Mountain Gazette debut in issue 197. Plus, long-form stories about skiing, about the Jackson Hole backcountry, biking, whitewater rafting, climbing, and much more. If you think print is dead, you are wrong. The only way to reserve a copy is to subscribe. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 88, Snow Trails, Ohio, General Manager Scott Chrislip. If Ohio skiing means something to you, it means everything to you. Let me explain that. If you're a teenager with a car and a pair of sticks and 300 foot bump, that's your spot. Endless park laps at night with your buddies That's lower Midwest skiing. No one is trying to pretend like it's Jackson Hole, but it's not like you have a hell of a lot of choice if you live there, and you're just glad to have it. So when Vail 
severely and unceremoniously slashed operating hours at its four Ohio ski areas last season. It was a gut punch. These are operations that had normally and historically spun the lifts 10 to 12 or more hours per day, seven days per week for the duration of Ohio's short winters. Suddenly, long after Epic Pass sales had ended, pass holders were faced with this. Alpine Valley, open three days a week for a total of 19 and a half hours. Boston Mills, open five days per week for a total of 32 hours. Brandywine, open seven days a week for a total of 46 hours. And Mad River, open seven days a week for a total of 44 hours. And none of them offered night skiing on weekends. In the Midwest, if you have ever skied one single day in the Midwest, I don't have to tell you how insane and offensive that is to a Midwesterner. Yes, there were challenges this year, a mild winter and a tight labor market, but they could be overcome. You know how I know that? Because Ohio's fifth ski area, snow trails, spun the lifts seven days per week, 79 hours a week, all winter long, opening weeks ahead of its Vail-owned competitors. It was a remarkable performance and one I had to hear more about. Let's do it. My guest today has been the general manager of Snow Trails Ohio for 22 years. Snow Trails has seven lifts, serving 17 trails across 200 acres on a 300-foot vertical drop. It is the only family-owned ski area in Ohio. Scott Chrislip is my guest. Scott, so good to have you. Welcome to the storm. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Stuart. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So first of all, Scott, how was your holiday weekend? Did you get a chance to relax a little bit? I wish I did. Uh, it was a busy weekend doing a lot of uh, honeydew list stuff and uh, getting our pool ready for the summer. So it was busy, but it still was nice. We had gorgeous weather all weekend. How busy does the ski area keep you in the summer? Do you have summer operations or is there a lot of maintenance to do? Um, myself, I'm, you know, we do have a lot of maintenance. Um, we do uh, lodge rentals for weddings and uh, class reunions, different events like that. We have three different lodges that we rent out. Um, I'm not really directly involved in much of it, uh, other than paying the bills. So no downhill MTB, zip lines, uh, obstacle courses, that sort of thing? Nope. Interesting enough, we've dabbled in just about everything. We've had, uh, a pretty big, um, mountain biking circuit here for years. It kind of faded out and then mountain biking came back. So we tried it again and it just never took off. Um, we've done uh, paintball for a number of years. Most recently, we got on the, uh, I guess I'll call it the Tough Mudder mm-hmm. bandwagon and ran one of those here that we locally ran ourselves uh, for probably about five years. And again, it's a, it, was, it just seems like it's a lot of work and not a lot of payoff. So, And then the uh, insurance companies aren't real <laughs> fond of a lot of those activities. So we just uh, stick with what we know. And what we do well, I hope. Did you jump into the Tough Mudder yourself, Scott, and give it a go? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> They're a lot of fun. I did one in New Jersey and one in Michigan. The, the camaraderie of it, the community piece of it, 
and the fact that you're doing it as a team with your buddies, I, I really liked it. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, I did too. I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I try to do the physical fitness thing as much as I can. And uh, we tried to make ours maybe not as tough as some of those out there <laughs> with the electric shocks and all that. But yeah, uh, we had a lot of crawling in mud and climbing and, you know, it was fun. Like I say, the camaraderie, everybody helping those you know, maybe you couldn't get over an obstacle, helping them over it and things like that. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I did not care for the electrical shocks. I yeah. also did one called a Spartan run that was at right. the abandoned tuxedo Ridge ski area that we have out here in New York. And one of the obstacles was quote unquote obstacle was to carry a 40 pound bag up of a quite short, but black diamond run. And my gosh, it's amazing how hard it is to climb up and go skiing, especially when you're carrying 40 pounds. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've walked our hill itself, and it doesn't look like much. You know, it's not very daunting. But when you start going up, you start to feel the burn. And I couldn't <laughs> imagine carrying a 40-pound pack up it unless I was training for something. Yeah, I'm in no hurry to do it again. All right, so let's talk about snow trails here. So uh, I want to start with my condolences. Last year, snow trails lost its founder, your father-in-law, David Cardo. Uh, just tell us, Scott, talk about David's legacy and what kind of person he was. Well, uh, Dave was, uh, I mean, most people will say that. He was an amazing guy, though. Uh, you know, he passed at 90, so he had a full full run at it and a good life. Um, he's well-known in the community for a lot of reasons. He's very civic minded. Uh, he did, he was on probably every board there was. He was president of most of them. He was president of our uh, chamber of commerce and everything else. Um, so he was well known in the community, not only for snow trails, but just what he gave back. And uh, just the, the ultimate gentleman is the way I put it. Um, just carried himself so impeccably all the time. Wasn't real stuffy, stuffy, but he was a he wasn't a wild and crazy guy. At least from when I knew him, um, I've known I knew him for well, probably over thirty five years. But uh, I'm sure in his heyday, he was a he was a fun guy. But uh, <laughs> no, he really carried himself very well and was quite a gentleman. And uh, of course, he was very passionate about the ski industry, and uh, you know grew it to what it is today. And, uh, he was a heck of a mentor for me, you know, working under him for just over 20 years and learned a heck of a lot from him. So it's fascinating that David actually founded snow trails back in 1961. So tell us about the ski area's founding and the role that David played in that. Okay. Well, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. The history, um, there were, uh, I guess I was five investors out of uh, Mansfield and Columbus area, and uh, they wanted to start a ski area. And Dave caught wind of this, and he had Dave at the time was the uh, president of their ski club. And he got Dave got interested in skiing when he was in the military and stationed in Minnesota, and fell in love with the sport and became the president of a local ski club that traveled around, you know, New York and so forth. And uh, so when he found out these guys were going to start up a, a ski area, he went and introduced himself. And uh, next thing they know, he's part of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
these are you can imagine five guys with a lot of money and you know just couldn't agree on things and he was kind of the intermediary and uh he started acquiring some of their stock and they would leave um for whatever reason the one guy left uh start clear fork i'm not familiar if you're familiar with the clear fork ski area in ohio yep it's probably was 20 and eh, less than 20 miles from snow trails and the one investor left to start this up on his own i think he had the better idea um but uh over time dave started acquiring their stock and eventually became the sole owner so he becomes the the sole owner and it's ohio it's not the most favorable climate necessarily for skiing how did david go about establishing a ski area in ohio and then making it sustainable for decades yeah it's a, it's a quite a story again uh, when these guys uh, the investors who got together they were smart guys and they picked uh, the area we're in it's called the possum run valley it for whatever reason is probably about oh five to seven degrees colder than the rest of the state um it's, it's situated near i-71 a major uh highway this this ex ohio and uh 13 which is a east-west uh highway which so is uh conveniently located and uh of course the probably the second highest elevation in ohio maybe third but uh you know still decent decent hill here like I said 300 vertical they came in they knew I think this was one of the furthest south that a ski area had been established. And they knew that uh, coming in that uh, they couldn't rely on you know, natural snow, mother nature. And so the intent was to come in and uh, do it with snowmaking. So back then, the snowmaking was pretty crude, to say the least. And you're, do you have a good water source there, your snow trails? We absolutely do. We have... Uh, an aquifer here that must have, I don't know, it's, it sustained us for all these years. And, uh, we're doing, you know, on a couple of seasons, over 60 million gallons of water. Oh, wow. So it's, you know, it's there. And, uh, the nice thing is we, we return it. We just borrow mm -hmm. it. <laughs> so you had a favorable bit, bit of geography and obviously it does get cold in Ohio, but if you, if you survey, the land of lost ski areas, the Midwest Lost Ski Areas Project counts 11 in Ohio. There are only five operating six if you count the little private area up near Cleveland. But the climate, geography and water, that's part of it. But part of it is operations and persistence and grit and smarts. Talk about that part of it and, and how David was able to, to take those natural advantages and convert them into a successful business, which is not necessarily easy thing to do. Well, you've hit it. You hit it on the nose there with the, all those. Uh, it's not easy, but uh, Dave was uh, passionate, um, very visionary. So our areas, again, it's small, but uh, it has kind of an out west feel to it. I mean, he had been skiing out places, so we have a, a main lodge, we have a mall area, we have a on. Uh, premise ski shop all the buildings have the same look and feel um, the, the main lodge is a uh, an old converted barn from this this was a farm 
Um, he always, like I said, it was a visionary. So always seeing ahead and always reinvesting in the area. Um, he didn't uh, pocket the money. He didn't go on the big European vacations and things. He just turned around and reinvested in the area. And we think that uh, that sustained us all these time, all these years. He always wanted the new shiny things, um, whether it was a lift or a carpet, whatever. He thought that every time he would improve, his visitations would go up. And he just kept going and going. And I don't know that he envisioned it being where it is today from where they started with just a, a single rope toe to six chairs and multiple lifts and tubing and everything else that goes with it. It's quite an operation that you all have built up over the years. And, you know, there's those two pieces to it. There's the geography and the climate, and then there's the, the operations and the technology. And then I would say, Scott, that the third piece of it is culture and community, right? So you mentioned how important community was to Dave, how he was involved in all the local boards. Just talk about the culture and the community that he built around snow trails and how crucial that has been to the scariest success over the decades. Again, you're right on with it because it's all about the culture and, you know, the ski industry or skier. It's a lifestyle. It's a culture. It's a vibe, whatever you want to call it. It's there. And you have to first get it and then cultivate it and keep it going. And it's, you know, it's one of those things you can't put your finger on, but people recognize it. And uh, Dave did that from the beginning with just with the employees. It starts there and your key staff. You know, uh, I always tell people that uh, our least senior managers, our marketing guy, and he's got 17 years here. Oh, wow. So, he's, you know, so we've got uh, our facilities, mountain managers over 35 years, our office manager over 30 years, uh, just goes on and on. And even down to, you know, the snowmakers, they come back year after year. And, uh, you know, that's, that's key there with your employees starts there. Um, I think everybody here loves it, passion about it. They're certainly not getting rich doing it. So, you know, there's more to it. And, uh, you know, I think that trickles right down to the guests and they feel it and then they become part of the culture and they, uh, you know, they feel that this is their home and they, they always say that to me, God, I miss the snow trails when it closed in the winter, it's my second home. And, you know, it's, uh, it's quite a, quite a camaraderie and things that are built here. You know, if you survey that history from a broader lens, 60 years, Dave was involved with it. And this wasn't a guy, it doesn't seem like that did his part and, and then retired and moved down to Florida. He was there, right? And oh, I read a lot of, you know, Motley Fool for investing advice, and they are very big on founder-led companies and the importance of having that one visionary who really believes in it at the head of a company that can get other people below them to believe in it and, and create a great culture and community that you've been talking about. Just talk about Dave's commitment to snow trails right through the end of his life and and being part of it and being present and and that how that energy energized the other folks around him and made them, as you say, want to stay at a time when we're talking about ski areas having trouble staffing up. It sounds like 
you have this team that's been with you for a long time and isn't going anywhere. And just talk about Dave's part in that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Dave uh, was in it for, well, can you imagine being at about 30 years old and, uh, you know, pretty much leaving your other job and getting into a ski area. And so, so he's with it. So he's like I said, he passed and he's 90. So 60 years of being here. And even at the, you know, at the end, he couldn't do as much, but he was here every day, you know, and he would often, you know, give advice and words of wisdom to me and things like that. And uh, he just, you could just tell he was so passionate about it, that he loved it. And you could tell the people, like I said, that have been here with him for 30 plus years. And he was, you know, in his early days, he was a hands-on guy. I didn't uh, start here until well, been 22 years, so he was almost 70 by the time he hired me on. And uh, so I didn't know him from a business standpoint early, but I know from talking with folks, he was he was out there. He was, you know, he wasn't micromanaging, but he was involved. He knew what was going on. He was, uh, you know, he was, he'd never walk by a piece of paper. He <laughs> would just stop and pick that up. And, and he would often chastise others like, did you just walk past it? You know, so we all got that. Okay. This is how you operate. Right. Take care of your stuff. And was he involved until the end? Yes, he was. He's his office. We just were cleaning it out. Uh, he, right up to the end. He got, uh, it fell ill probably the last month or so and couldn't make it out. But uh, there was a point there where he couldn't drive. He had some medical issues and uh, I'd pick him up every morning, bring him out take him home for lunch, bring him back out. And yep, he was, he would just grind and he just loved it. Uh, I'm sure it's an enormous hole in your community with Dave's passing. Do you have any plans to honor him on the mountain, rename a trail maybe, or a lift? We've, we've done, um, we definitely discussed that. Um, it really wasn't Dave's style. He really didn't like the, well, I shouldn't say he was kind of a showman, but he, really wasn't that kind of in-your-face guy. He, we just built a new day lodge, a smaller one to take some of the heat off of our main building. And uh, we thought about, you know, do we, do we call it Dave's Lodge? You know, we kind of, but uh, I guess the bottom line is somewhere down the road, we'll probably honor him with something on the hill. It's not sure what yet, or but it will come and yeah, I think there's the opportunity to do that. So it sounds like the family is still very invested in running the ski area. We find that's not often the case, that the next generation does have that passion or interest in operating a ski area, which frankly is, is I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but very difficult to do um, in a sustainable way. So is the family's intent to keep snow trails independent and in the family for the foreseeable future? That is our intent. Um, so Dave was first generation, myself and my wife, Amy, who uh, she's been running our ski shop for a little over 35 years now. And uh, that's how we got, well, that's how I ended up in Mansfield. But, uh, and then I have uh, two sons that are both active in the business and one nephew. And then my uh, brother-in-law, who also is a part owner with my wife and myself, is active in the uh, youth racing program and has been for over 30 years. 
and uh, helps on our, he's on our finance committee and things like that. So yeah, we're definitely uh, still family operated, plan to stay that way. Um, again, the boys and the, the nephew, um, that's, that's going to be up to them where the, how much, you know, where they want to take it, but uh, they have the passion also. Uh, they're very, very much involved. Um, youngest son has just taken over as guest services manager. Oldest son, Andrew, has been uh, a maintenance uh, park crew manager for a number of years. And uh, nephew Dave has uh, been in food and beverage, and he's also uh, very much involved. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of snow trail skiers that are going to be very happy to hear that, Scott. Let's go back here. How did you, I believe you said 35 years ago, how did you come to snow trails? How did you meet the Carto family? Okay. Um, I met my be wife at that time at uh, Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. We were both going to school there. Um, just met through some mutual friends. We graduated same time in 1981, mm-hmm. <laughs> dating myself here, but uh, <laughs> I was from Cle- the Cleveland area. I lived in Lakewood, the west side, and uh, Amy was uh, then suit looking for work and got a job in the Cleveland area. So we both lived up in Cleveland for oh, about five years, got married, and uh, she had the opportunity to uh, start running the ski shop, which was her ultimate goal. And in the end, she went to fashion merchandising and things like that in college. And uh, 1988, I believe it was, she had the opportunity to come down and start managing the store. The folks that were there were elderly couple and it's time for them to retire and uh so i moved down here with uh, my wife i ended up in the uh, i was a at that time i was working in the manufacturing sector as a procurement manager and found a job down in mansfield area doing the same type of work did that for i think about 12 years and uh Dave's youngest son, Terry, was the general manager at Snow Trails uh, for a number of years. I think he decided that uh, he had had enough of the family business and had some different ideas to take his life in a different direction and uh, opted to leave. At that time, Dave came to me and said, would I be interested in joining the business. And of course I jumped out the opportunity, <laughs> but he, I knew what I was getting into in some regards. Like I said, I'd been in Mansfield for about 12 years at that point in time. So I was very familiar with snow trails. I knew right off the bat when Dave said, well, I can't pay you what you're making now, <laughs> but <laughs> work something out. <clears throat> Paid me what he could and he said, oh, I'll, I'll give you a leased car. That'll make up some of it. So I still joined and uh, <laughs> 22 years later, here I am still enjoying it. Did you grow up skiing? Were you a, were you a skier? Interesting. I was not. Um, I never even joined with the, the clubs in Cleveland because they would go down to one of the local areas, Boston Mills Brandywine. But uh, mm-hmm. I was not. Um, so at 25, I took up skiing <laughs> and my wife is an excellent skier, whole family is. They pretty much grew up on skis. Um, she decided she would 
teach me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you're familiar with that. That doesn't go well. <laughs> it took about a half an hour. He said, no, no, find me an instructor. <laughs> and uh, of course, back then, that's all, well, the beginner's hill had rope toes. Mm-hmm. Holy oh, cow. What an experience that is. <laughs> And I, you know, so you've got that. I don't know how many people fit on a rope toe, and they're all a bunch of beginners. Uh-huh. And they all pull the rope when they're falling, and it was <laughs> something else. But uh, so now I consider myself a skier. Um, maybe not as, I always say, pretty as some of the people I see skiing. I always mm-hmm. jealous because I just, I just didn't get enough time on the hill, mm-hmm. especially living in Cleveland for part of it, and then. Once we moved here, I got more time, but uh, still consider myself a skier. I very much enjoy the the sport. I've been out west. I've been most big mountains I can handle. I'm not a big steep and mogul guy, but, uh, you know, I love to cruise it. Do you still get a chance to go out west at the end of the season? Because usually snow trails will wrap up at season, you know, mid-March. So do you, is that something you do regularly? Um. No, interestingly enough, it's, uh, I guess when you grind it for about a hundred straight days, mm-hmm. last thing I want to see is more skiing. And so it's, you know, I guess I enjoy the sport, but I don't have the, the overwhelming love that a lot of people do. But, uh, now I end up and usually end up going South and going laying on the beach. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I interviewed Greg Fisher, who is now the general manager up at Granite Peak in Wisconsin, and he ran Mad River for three years, as I'm sure you know. And he was saying, you know, it's a short season. It's 12, 14 weeks, depending on the year, but it is a grind. You're 12 hours a day, sometimes 14 hours a day. It's morning skiing. It's night skiing. You have the college nights. It is really, really intense. This is not a nine to four kind of operation. So, and I know snow trails runs that same kind of schedule. So when you say a hundred days in a row, I mean, I, I, you know, most general managers I know don't take days off (laughs) during the winter. So I imagine you have earned that beach time. Well, I guess, I don't know. People always say, (laughs) Oh, you earned it. I said, I don't know if I earned it or not, but I'm taking it. And uh, (laughs) um, yeah, it is. And by the way, Greg's an awesome guy. I did get to know him from Mad River and, uh, and then I see him at the shows and things like that. So we still, you know, have a beer together. And uh, he's a super good guy and uh, great for granted. They got an awesome dude there. But, uh, yeah, we really do. We, uh, I pride myself on the 22 years here. I haven't missed a day of the season. Wow. wow. And, uh, you know, again, they're 90 to 100 days, like you say, 12, 14 hours. Um Unfortunately, I don't ski much even here. People are like, well, you, you, you work there. I said, yeah, I work here. And we're, you're going. And so I hopefully when, you know, the end of the season, say February and March, things are they're done. I mean, you can't do any more. But then I'll try and get out there. And, you know, I admit it. Uh, I wait for those bluebird days. And I'm like, all right, perfect. I'm out. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. But, uh, yeah. You really have to be into it and enjoy it and be passionate about it to, to grind like that, you know, those kind of hours. But uh, it's all all worth it. I see some of these ski areas that open in, you know, early November and uh-huh. go till May, June. You'd have mm-hmm. to have a different 
mindset going into that. You couldn't sustain that kind of pace. <laughs> yeah, there's there's several still open. Arapahoe Basin, Crystal Mountain now in Washington, right. uh, Killington, some of the Oregon spots. So, and they're still getting snow in Colorado, believe it or not. Yeah, I'm sure you keep up on that. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of them so, go right into summer operations after that, and so it's a different different animal. Yeah. So you mentioned the NSA show and uh, in, in seeing your colleagues there. Did you have a chance to make it down to the show in Nashville this year? I did not. I don't go to the NSA ones mm. as much because they're and I I kind of think that they're kind of geared for the big boys. And, um, but the MSAA shows uh, go to those all the time. Um, I've been on the board for, I think, about 12 years now. And uh Matter of fact, this year is my year to be chair for the next two years. So I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, nice. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's another one of those things where we talk about the camaraderie and all the things, you know, just to see the, all the other owners, managers, GMs, what have you not, and to tell stories. And uh, I love to take new people, my kids, uh, different folks that have never been, to just show them that, you know, snow trails isn't a bunch of idiots. Everybody's in the same boat we are. The same problems, the same everything. You know, they come right. back going, oh, okay, we're not so bad. <laughs> so there's, you know, as you said, you're facing common challenges. You know, some some ski areas are able to manage it better than others. It seems as though in relation to the rest of the ski areas in Ohio, snow trails had a fairly strong season, but let's start there. How was the 2021 to 22 ski season at snow trails? Um, overall, at the end of the day, it was an awesome season. We've had back-to-back -back ones uh, with the COVID year and then this year. Um, as we, you're well aware, you know, with COVID and all that lockdown stuff, People now just want to get out, do things, be active, whatever it is, bicycling, canoeing, kayaking, and skiing is right there with it. You've seen the surgeons in it. Uh, it's awesome. But, uh, yeah, we just uh, had another banner year. Um, started off terrible. We're certainly concerned. I think uh, Christmas Day, I think it was 55 and raining in Ohio. Wow. And... Uh, we, we struggle. We uh, kind of got this gambler's mentality of whenever the opportunity to make snow come November, we're going to do it. And the gambles have paid off for the most part. You know, a lot of times we just make it and let it sit. Don't spread it out. But, you know, we just go for it every time. It's the mentality. And my uh, facilities mountain managers on board with it, too. Sometimes he might grumble a little like it's november 10th it's like now fire them up but uh yeah we uh started slow i mean we were half green half white for part of the early to late december part but then once we got going boy it was it was a great one january february into march what when did you actually open this year well technically i think we were uh, december 12th i believe it was mm -hmm. but yeah. uh we were like i said we were half green half white <laughs> um but the people were still coming out then we had to close down right around that christmas time because of 
warmth and rain and then got it back open and I think the 2nd of January, somewhere right around there. So you mentioned the crowds and just banner year and, and all the folks who want to be outside. Snow trails is not huge. How have you been able to manage that volume? Do you, do you manage it with tickets? Do you just, you know, the parking lot's only so big. Uh, how have you been able to accommodate or, or grow while still maintain, retaining some of the quality of the ski experience? Well, it's a great question and uh, still looking for the answers. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, we may, we learned a lot, uh, kind of use the corny joke, don't let a good pandemic go to waste. And <laughs> we learned a lot of things from that, um, especially with like ticketing, doing everything online um, so we can control the number of tickets we sell daily. We asked for, for this first time ever, we, we limited the number of passes we were selling. Mm. So uh, we were actually shutting it down before the season started. Um, wasn't the best received thing, but uh, we knew that we would out, you know, just the capacity. We just couldn't handle it. And we could open the floodgates, but it was all about, again, the experience for the customers. And it wasn't, you know, we knew we left money on the table, but it was, I think, the better thing to do for everybody. We just need to, you know, you know, my accountant will probably shoot me if he hears this, but, you know, <laughs> we, we just need to make enough money to pay everybody a decent wage and to do the improvements at the end of the year that we want to and keep moving forward. And, uh, make sure that our guests have a great time. So that's our philosophy. And uh, hopefully it uh, pays off dividends in the end. We think it will. So you have an interesting statistic related to all this on your website. Everyone lists their vertical drop and their number of lifts and their snowmaking and everything else. But you also list comfortable capacity. And you set that number at 2,600. Just talk about the importance of that number and keeping to it as as people come out and you know they want to spend their day there with you and you don't want them waiting in line all day so so how did you arrive at that number and and why did you set it to begin with um it was part of a formula that we use for just up you know your chairs your number of chairs how many you know the doubles triples so forth and the uphill speeds and that's a calculation um but we just again as i said we try to control it's still a I guess a work in progress. We've never been encountered with this. Last year was the first year we stopped selling passes. And, uh, you know, we're, we have a comfort capacity on the hill. Again, I said we could open the floodgates and let tons of people in here. But if you're familiar with the Midwest, you've got a, maybe a three minute chair ride and then a 30 second ride down. And, uh, you know, who wants to stand in line for 20 minutes or longer? just to take that little run. It's frustrating. Um, your lodge is packed. You can't get a burger. You can't get a beer. Nobody's happy with that. And yeah, will they tolerate it? Sure. But uh, it's no way to, to, to do it, I don't think. Uh, I often look at the human toll also on our staff. And we really saw that in the uh, first year of the pandemic. Um, we had to, you know, cut back like everybody else with indoor capacities and do these things. 
And you could just see how busy we were and how it really wore down the people. So it seems like you're still tweaking that formula. You have yet to put season passes on sale for the 2022 to 23 ski season, at least according to the latest I saw on your website. Do you have any update on just how you're approaching this and how you're thinking about what your pass structure and your season pass structure will look like for next ski season? Uh, it's exactly right. We're about ready to launch it here. We have, oh, we have been in meeting after meeting. So myself, my marketing guy, and then have an operations manager and our guest services manager. And we meet constantly and we're just meeting to death. And, but we want to try and get this right. But we're not sure what right is. But uh, we've done some restructuring of passes. Uh, we're very big with the school groups, you know, mm -hmm. the most of the Midwest is. Mm -hmm. And we've just seen such a resurgence on that. And so we're trying to say, okay, you know, that was a heavily discounted ticket or pass for them. But we still think that's so important to get those people interested at that junior high, high school age and create those skiers and, uh, you know, that, that lifestyle and everything. So, again, we've tried to keep those. We also had some adult groups where said, you know, we've been giving them an awful lot for a little amount of money that they probably have to pay a little bit more. And then we still have our elite gold pass holders, which will which is a straight to the slopes thing and uh, has some other privileges. And so we're really tweaking it. And what's that magic number is, is tough. You know, how many passes, you know, and uh, when will he, what are these people's habits what are when do they come skiing and you know uh, it's it's interesting we have some statistics we work off of but we you know but only at it now for two seasons of really trying to figure this out so it sounds like your big challenge is figuring out how to limit the number of skiers while still having a sustainable business but while we're on the subject of passes i'll ask you anyway have you considered joining the Indy Pass or if not joining fully their new Allied Resorts program, which would allow your pass holders to add an Indy Pass on at a discount and would give Indy Pass holders a discount at snow trails? Is that something you've ever considered? Um, absolutely have considered it. Um, right now with us limiting passes and things like that, we just decided this wasn't a good time to, to get involved with that. I like the concept. I love, you know, there's a little bit of... Uh, us against the world type thing mm -hmm. mentality there. But uh, the timing isn't real strong for us right now on it, like I said, with us even limiting our local passes and things. But I will consider it here, you know, if things change. So it really is snow trails against the world. There are five public ski areas in Ohio, Mad River, Boston Mills, Brandywine, Alpine Valley, and snow trails. The other four are all owned by Vail Resorts. Prior to that, they were all owned by Peak Resorts. You know, they all used to be independent. And in your time at Snow Trails, they have all slowly consolidated under one company or another. Just take us back here. As you were watching this consolidation happen around you in Ohio, what was going through your head? How did you perceive that? How did you react? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was an oh, yeah, oh shit moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, no question about it. Uh, again, we are all independent. Matter of fact, we were all kind of, like I say, we were all competitors, but we weren't enemies. And there was a certain amount even within that of sharing, you know, and things like that. 
but then uh, when peak bottom up, it changed. I want to say we became more competitors um, and really not as friendly. <laughs> we're you know enemies, but uh, you could see they were they wanted to gobble us up. I think that was it. And I know that they would watch what we do and we'd watch what they do and uh, we would go at it. And so it, would, it kept, it was good. It was good for, I don't know. And we didn't really need the motivation and everyone says, oh, competition's good. Well, sure it is if you're lazy and less lackadaisical on your approaches, but uh, we weren't anything like that, but it definitely kept us on our toes. So the, the, yeah, that was, that was something we would battle it out. Uh, who would open first, who would stay open the longest, all those things. You know, we especially with between uh, Mad River and Boston Mills Brandywine because we're right in the middle and share market. You know, there's only so much uh, people out of Cleveland, Columbus, and those surrounding areas that would choose who was better, who they liked. Some of it was just, uh, again, geography. You know, if you live five minutes away, you were going to your home base. But then uh, they all came in and bought it. And I can still remember it was a couple years ago. And, uh, I think I was at MSAA and uh, news came through and we're like, oh my, (laughs) a couple couple people in the industry that I would be like, oh, sorry about your luck. And, you know, so it was uh, pretty nerve wracking. Here are the biggest, you know, ski corporation in North America just buys four areas in your state. And, uh, you know, fear of the unknown, I guess, was there. And then what happened? I, I I have to say, Scott, I am so impressed with snow trails this year. You absolutely cleaned Vale's clock. I mean, they looked like uh, a high school kid put in the NBA finals against the Golden State Warriors. Like they were lost. They they couldn't offer full operating schedules. They couldn't staff up. Snow trails was open 79 hours a week. 99 on weekends, 10 to 9 Monday through Friday. I'm saying this for the benefit of the listeners, obviously not telling you anything you don't know. Alpine Valley was open 19 and a half hours per week. We're only open uh, three days a week. Boston Mills was open 32 hours per week. They were closed Monday and Tuesday. Brandywine was open 46 hours a week. Mad River was open 44 hours per week. And none of Vail's four Ohio ski areas, Scott. And this is the, the insane part to me. Not a single one of them offered night skiing on weekends. So just talk about this. How was it that Snow Trails was able to run a full operating schedule, fully staff up, as Vail, the largest operator in the world, uh, the, the behemoth flailed like a fish out of water, and you just kicked their butts from beginning to end, open weeks ahead of time. How were you able to do that when when they struggled so badly and blamed weather and blamed staffing and blamed everything else but themselves? Well, again, we just did what we always do. I mean, we just went after the season no different than the others. We didn't, they weren't, uh, Veil wasn't our motivation or anything. We just said, this is another season. Here we go, like we do Snow Trail's way. I think, uh, again, uh, Veil's, they're, they're a great company. They have a lot of smart people. I mean, way smarter than we give them credit. But I, I think when they took over the 17 resorts from Peak, they 
They just, uh, I don't know if they knew what they were getting into on the Midwest side. Um, you know, the Midwestern deal is a whole different animal. I know they had bought Afton Alps and Brightonton, and uh, they were starting to dabble in it. But those are, I guess, bigger areas that come, you know, feeders from metropolitan areas, which is pretty much their motive or operational plans. Um, so the Midwest is such a different animal, especially with these smaller ones. Uh, the people, and I'm sure they're everywhere, the locals just, they take ownership of it. They, it's their area. I'm sure they're, like I said, that the, the big ones have their locals too, but this is such a passion for all these folks. And, you know, they just, I'm not sure they saw that coming or these, these kids, they message you, what park? open what features are in it you know what are the conditions when the jump line open you know they're you know it's a whole communication thing with the folks uh you know they want answers now our marketing guy spends so much time in social media just chatting with the people and answering their questions and you know Vale, they run it it's a big corporation it's run as a corporation i can see where they they don't uh every area doesn't have its own operating procedure. This is the Vale way and it works in Vale. It works in, you know, our big resort. So we'll carry it down into the Midwestern ones. Uh, you know, their management, I'm sure you keep up on it. They're constantly promoting folks from within, which is awesome. Uh, you know, this guy was the head of finance at whatever Vale and now he's the general manager at Stowe or wherever. And so I think there's a certain amount of, uh, I don't know, the folks, the managers, the GMs need to be ingrained in the, the business of people here and learn what their likes and dislikes. And I don't know, it's a, I think that it's an eye opener for it. And I'm sure they'll fix it because like I said, there, there's a lot of smart guys there, but uh, hopefully they have some good, ski people and not all wall street folks <laughs> you mentioned scott that your least tenured manager had 17 years there and you had a lot of loyal folks on your staff running the other parts of the mountain talk about that culture of longevity and tenure and seniority and and how that contributed you to you being able to face a, a very challenging snow year. I don't think anyone's going to deny that. Very challenging weather-wise, very challenging from a labor market point of view, not just in skiing, but uh, in a lot of businesses around the company or country that are customer service oriented. So talk about the importance of that ingrained staff in allowing you to just face these challenges without really having to affect your operations, at least from my point of view at all. Yeah, uh, again, uh, these folks here... Um been around forever they obviously love it and like i said you know if you're familiar with the ski industry it's not a high paying industry but uh i think that uh, just the passion there um i'm kind of the the non micromanager i really i don't you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room just surround your people yourself with the smartest people and you're good to go um pretty much everybody runs their own show Obviously, certain things they have to answer to, but uh, that independence, I think they really like that. Um, the days are never the same. You know, even for myself, one day I'll be, you know, meeting with the vice president of the bank, and the next we're 
helping some kids at a uh, elementary school, giving a little talk on snow trail. So it's, <laughs> it's always changing. Um, same with the, even the work, you know, the, the guys out there making snow, just, just love it. You can see, you know, when you first turn those guns on, whenever in November, it's just a awesome sight. I mean, it never gets old. Um, lots of variety in the things they do. And again, uh, not everybody that works here too is a, a, uh, diehard skier. They, a lot of them do ski, but, uh, it's uh, kind of like me. I enjoy the sport, but I love the business. And I think that's what it is for everybody. They really, really do enjoy the industry. Yeah, that culture piece will get you a long way. And, and you know, as you said, Vale is working on that part of it in the Midwest. One thing that they did to do to respond is they announced that their minimum wage would now be $20 an hour across the country. Have you thought about that and how you'll respond from a business point of view when it comes to your workforce? Yeah, that's certainly, uh, I don't know that still a little nervous about the whole thing. I don't think they'll steal any of our folks or anything because of, again, geography, you know, people who work here generally live in this area and they're not going to commute to Boston Mills Brandywine or Mad River for it may lose some instructors or something like that who are, you know, a little more passionate and will travel the extra hour or so. But uh, it's really, I guess, I mean, I understand why they're doing it. And it's kind of going to upset the balance, at least for something like Ohio and for us who are caught in the middle. You know, people, well, they pay me this over there. And, yeah, I understand that. And they're... Uh, I don't know. I'm going to be see how it uh, shakes out. A little bit nervous on it, but uh, I, unfortunately, snow trails can't compete with that kind of wage offerings. And if we did, we'd have to, uh, I guess, take on some more people. And then we kind of lose that end of it. But now we're got a little more crowded. And but I don't know. We 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 were struggling last year with uh, the staffing. We, we ran everything. We didn't have limited hours, but, you know, with attrition, which always happens in our business as the year goes on, got a little lean here sometimes. Uh, I pulled a, I pulled quite a few parking lot duties, and I did some tube wrangling down in the park. So <laughs> you do what you got to do. <laughs> so from a skier point of view, if you look at one net result of Vale's decision to raise that minimum wage, it suggests that they're more serious about fully staffing their mountains this coming year. And really that was when you get down to it, why they limited their hours this past year. They tried to recruit folks at 1125 an hour. Hard to do that when Burger King is paying 15 or whatever, and you get to work inside and not outside in the middle of winter, right? So th the result was that Vale ended up limiting or restricting their operating hours at all of their Ohio ski areas after the season pass sale ended because epic pass sales end in early December traditionally. So to me, this was the most egregiously offensive part of this whole thing. It really seemed like a bait and switch, which, you know, as I said, I grew up in the Midwest and I know that probably doesn't play well in Ohio and that let's look at it this way, Scott, what would have happened at snow trails if you had sold season passes and then drastically cut hours and said, oh, you know what? We're only going to operate four days a week. We're not going to have night skiing 
on weekends because in Ohio, skiers have been used to for decades. You're open 12 hours a day, seven days a week for that three months. It's a short season, but we'll buy your season pass and we'll align with you because of that. But how would your customers have responded if you had acted that way? Well, I think we all know the answer to that one, but uh, <laughs> I do think that was kind of a gut punch by Vale. And I don't know, you know, you can have all kinds of conspiracy talk about why they did it and, you know, is it all bottom line and this and that. Um, I'm sure they did have some struggles uh, staffing. Um, they were still, and to their credit, they were still held to the, uh, you know, the whole COVID thing. Their their employees had to be vaccinated and all those. And that probably hurt in a tough job market already. And, uh, you, know, you know, we don't want to get into the political sides of, you know, vaccinations and all that. But I think they, they just, you know, we rely on 16 and 17 year old kids to run food and beverage and rental and all those things and instruct. And I think that hurt them there. Now, will this wage thing help them? It will if their restrictions are lifted. I think that will help. But uh, yeah, we're going to move forward with this. And uh, um, if we, back to your question, had we done that to our guests with uh, you know the passes and then restricted hours after the fact, oh boy, they would have they would have run me out of town. I would see the the pitchforks and you know the whole old fashioned running me out of town type deal. I just couldn't do it. We did everything we could to the opposite. You know, a lot of times we used to limit the the lifts we would run during certain days and times. And this time we were run every minute we were open. We tried to have all six lifts running and uh, keep everything going and not limited hours. We did. Um, cut out our uh, Friday nights. We used to go to midnight. Um, and that was a couple things. One, didn't want to, the toll on the staff was the big thing. You know, you got ski patrollers who are volunteering and now you're asking them to stay to midnight and they're struggling to, you know, staff up themselves just from age, you know, aging. Everything's aging, unfortunately, and not a lot of people coming in. But uh, yeah, it would not have been a pretty scene. And, uh, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, I'm, I'm out there amongst, you know, I'm not in my office, just doing work all the time. I like to be in the lodge. I like to be out on the deck. People know you. It would, I would have been hiding. Do you think that you'll bring back that midnight Friday close at some point? Um, if thing if things change, we'll, we're certainly, you know, we always want to keep things fresh too. I think, uh, the kids loved it uh, more than anything. I think some of the families even enjoyed it. We would, uh, we'd call it acoustic nights. We'd have every Friday night, we'd have a acoustic act in the lodge and, you know, stay open till midnight. And it was, a, it was well-received. So I hope maybe someday that'll come back. I think when you, when you look at Vale's decisions this year, it wasn't just limiting operating hours. that was offensive. It was cutting night skiing and, Night skiing is just so crucial in the Midwest. Talk about how important night skiing is to snow trails, both from a business point of view and just to the scariest culture. Well, that's right. Uh, again, you know, that, you know, you've been in big mountains and they don't offer night skiing, obviously, because they can't illuminate mountains or, you know, they do have some smaller sections and so forth. But with the Midwest, it's, it's a big part of the whole scene. Um, 
especially as I had mentioned earlier, we were very big in the schools. You know, we have busloads of kids coming Monday through Friday, and it's at night. I mean, it gets dark by five o'clock in Ohio, or so. You know, that's when all those groups are coming, and uh, you know, we picked up a bunch of uh, schools from Boston Mills, Brandywine, Mad River, and so forth because they weren't really catering to them. And uh, now it's it's something that uh, it's half the day. I think it's an essential part of it, especially not only the schools, but the after work, you know, the guys and families after dinner and come out and make some runs, take some laps, as we call them. Uh, it's an enjoyable time when it's, you know, not a Saturday afternoon and you're out there on Monday, you've got a lot of room to move. It's nice. I mean, just how badly did Vale miscalculate here? I mean, Ohio, if, if you look at what they're doing, they essentially they have their big resorts out west and some in New England now, and they use these little areas. I mean, they're good businesses close to, to cities from, from everyone I've spoken to that runs one. But right. they also hope that you buy the Epic Pass and then you go out to Vale or you go up to Stowe. As you talk to folks and, you know, it sounds like, their decisions benefited you, at least for the night skiing portion of it. As, as you talk to folks, how alienated are they in Ohio? And, and how badly did Vail miscalculate that it could just write off this entire state and offer a very mediocre product, frankly? Well, again, they, you know, I'm not sure what the miscalculation was. Like I said, I give them all the credit in the world being smart folks over there. But you, you see it in the industry and the people are very, very angry about all these things and uh you know you saw the veil fail and all these kind of hashtag things and it just uh people were very angry about it again we benefited some from it uh, i think they're going to learn from it they'll correct what they can and uh um you know like that taking on those 17 resorts from peak was huge um Obviously, they weren't real experienced, as I mentioned before. They had a couple of uh, Midwest areas, but uh, now they have a lot. Um, I assume with this portfolio that they bought, they didn't necessarily want all those, but you know there were some real gems in there that they got. Um, they're going to have to. They're going to have to really figure it out. The, like I said, the Midwest is a is a different animal. And uh, the Midwest, when you get into these Ohio ones, especially, and you know, they'll, they'll they'll figure it out, but it might be a little bit of a learning curve. Yeah, it it, it, are, it they're already demonstrating that is that it is. I'm sure that it's in your best interests to have a thriving, strong, robust, confident Ohio ski industry, even though it's you and Vale. So, as someone who's done this for a long, long time who understands the market, who understands the weather, who understands the operations. Do you have any friendly advice for Vail on how they can succeed in Ohio? Well, a couple of things. Uh, again, as you said, it's, it's, I think, I hope, and I'm not trying to buy, be naive or anything, but I'm hoping that Vail just sees us as an ally and doing exactly what they set out to do, and that's to create skiers. And so, you know, be more than happy to work with them. I mean, I, I imagine if they wanted to, they could probably wipe us off the map, if, but I don't think that's in their best interest. Um, Cause we, like I said, we do 
just what they're doing, only we do it for them. Um, again, uh, for advice, again, and they'll they'll figure it out, but I really think with the, with the Midwest, you really have to, and I know it sounds crazy or stupid or basic, but really have to listen to the people, the skiers, um, engage with them. They want to know, like I said, those kids want to know what, what features are open, when spark, when's this, you know, they're constantly bombing you with questions that they're probably not used to answering when they were running the big mountains. They, you know, those are tourists. They come and go and here these people have bought into this and they just have to really pay attention to the folks and what they're saying, what they're asking. And it's tough when you're a big corporation, I think. You can really feel that corporate, I don't know, feel of it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm of the opinion, and I say this all the time, that wherever Vail operates, they should be the best in that area. And so far, you know, they do that in a lot of areas, and they just have struggled to adapt in certain areas. So it will be really interesting to watch. Uh, but let's let's move on to snow trails. Talk about your mountain. And let's start with your lift fleet. You know, I want to start actually with a comment you made earlier about learning on the rope toe. And you actually do have a carpet now. So talk about when you got that carpet and why and how that transformed the experience for beginners. Oh, boy. Timing on that. Uh, again, uh, we have two two carpets on the ski area side and one on the tubing side. But uh, the ones on the skiing side... Uh, um, one's on the beginner's hill, goes about halfway up, and the other is on what we call the first timer's ramp, which is not much more than a training ramp, which is awesome. But uh, when I first got into the business, oh, 22 years ago, I had been at a show and saw the this carpet, and, and I said, that is just awesome. We got to have one of those. It's so user-friendly. and. By then, the, the rope toe had been gone by then, and we just had a beginner's double. But we needed something more. And uh, back then, it was a KSAR, KSAR. I don't even know if they're in business anymore, but uh, we installed that. So probably been around 20-some years now. Um, bought another one used from a, from a, a place up in, uh, I believe it was Pennsylvania. And uh, so they're still operating. Um, they're a great asset. Uh, like I said, uh, the one on the beginner's ramp, I mean, it's very, just a little pitch to it. Great for teaching. And, uh, you know, of course, then we've got, uh, the six chairlifts and, uh, as we had mentioned, they're, they're, they're old. Yeah, your newest lift was installed in 1988. As you look at this lift fleet, what's your wish list for eventual upgrades as you think about the mountain's future? Um, ideally, um, over on our west side, we have a, uh, that's when that uh, Westwood chair was put in 88, and that is our most congested area. It's the furthest from the lodge, so I think the kids like it that way. Plus, um, there's the parks over there and the jump line. So there's a lot for the young people. So it gets pretty crowded over there. Um, ideally, I'd like to have a quad over there. It doesn't have to be high speed by any stretch, but, uh, and then that triple would come over and replace our oldest double, which is on our main hill over here in Mount Mansfield. And, uh, and then uh, 
I keep working with the guys. They're not biting it, but I still think we're going to need to put a rope toe up in mid park up there and just keep those kids up there lapping. I think that would take some, some heat off of that lift. Yeah, that would be an amazing idea. And, and I've seen other ski areas do that because the park kids just want to be in the park. They just yeah. want to lap the park. They will do it all day. They'll take one chairlift ride and you'll never see them again until dinner time. So that would be amazing. What's the resistance to it? Um, I'm not real sure there's a real resistance. Some are just thinking that's eh, not going to do what I hope it would do. And that's just it. Keep some of the heat off of the carpet. Um, uh, there's probably some installation is issues there. But uh, we're, we're working on it. I think before you know it, we'll have one. If it's not, but obviously it may not happen this season, but I'm thinking by next year, because one day I'm just going to show up and I'm going to go, look what I bought. <laughs> and uh, oh, okay. But, uh, it, I don't know. It, it should be, there's not a lot of resistance or just uh, not a lot of, not as enthusiastic as I thought, but uh, mm. I think it would work out well. And, well, uh, I'm excited about it, Scott. I don't yeah. know if that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. So I got somebody on my side. And uh, again, we've looked at uh, some new lifts. Of course, the way things are going right now, I think Vale's got all the manufacturers tied up for the next two years. But uh, <laughs> um, last time we dabbled in, I think uh, the lift was about 1.5 million dropped off in the parking lot. So I imagine that cost has gone up to 2 million. So that's a that's a tough pill for snow trails to fall you know to swallow yeah. but uh, that's for may, the quad may just have to do it yeah it was a quad hmm. i think it was a doppelmeyer so uh we'll have to figure it out in the meantime we're uh we're taking care of the lists we have um you know obviously as you mentioned they're older um safety is key for us and then of certainly comfort and all those things for the folks uh so we're constantly uh We've put new shivs on one, uh, two of them now. Um, we put a hydraulic tensioner on our Mount Mansfield, which used to have the old concrete counterweight. Um, Skytrack is now building one for our Alpine chair, a, uh, a t hydraulic tensioner that will take off the uh, counterweight. And uh, it just makes them, modernizes them. Oh, uh, we're switching everything over to AC drives and, you know, PLC controls. And so even though they were installed, the, most of them have been rebuilt and are pretty nice shape, I think, for their age. Are you pretty happy with the footprint where the lifts are? I know as as things evolve, sometimes the lifts aren't necessarily where you would want them. You mentioned the park and there were no terrain parks. 30 years ago, right? So so as you look around, do you like where the lifts are or, or, or is there a place where you would want a new lift or to move a lift? Um, I think I we really do. There are six of them and we kind of have the, the ridge type of area. So everything is segregated in six parts with those chairs. We have access to all of them. Um, ideally, we put a, uh, a small, if we could have another quad maybe or double, it doesn't matter what size over on our far west side where i said where there's a lot of uh, congestion we had put in in 2011 a timberline run which is a it's very long gradual um it's a great training area because it has a little steep at the beginning but then really mellows out and you can really work on 
technique and things like that without worrying about. But that would be a great location to have a, a chair up there and move people in that direction also. So perhaps that's, would that be something you would consider maybe if you, if you moved Westwoods over to the Mansfield double, maybe you stick that Mansfield double over on Timberline? Yeah. Um, you know, we, uh, we're, we're always uh, looking around and uh, seeing who has, you know, equipment they're taking down, which they, they don't need it anymore. They're putting in something new and we can get a decent deal on a, on a chair and take care of it and refurb it. We might just do that. Yeah, I, I think the ones there, unfortunately, the ones that Vale is replacing up at Boston Mills Brandy Mine I, are from the 60s or 70s. So probably those ones are toast, but yeah. but there, there's others around the country, right? Yep, there absolutely are. So we're always keeping an eye on that. But uh, yeah, it's an expensive endeavor, but that's what we're here for. I mean, that's a pill is what we're all about. So they can get down, keeping the right number of lifts running so that you don't have the crowds at the bottom but also not on the hill. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough balance to get. And, and I imagine it's something you're always thinking about. You, you mentioned you did add that new trail timberline about a decade ago. Is there more room to expand? I, I noticed there's some forest around snow trails on Google Maps. I don't know if you own any of that or if any of that is hilly. Is there any potential for expansion? Um, I think we're pretty much at our capacity now I do, and I hope they're not listening to your podcast. We have some neighbors to the east of us that have a it's uh, some cottages and things on the hill, and uh, if we could acquire that property, that would be awesome. We could expand that direction. We're far as I think with the timber line. I think that's about the best we could do on the west side of our hill, but on the east side, that would be just awesome if we could do something over there. How much land is over there and what kind of vertical drop are you looking at? Uh, it's got the same topography as we do, so it's connected right there. I don't know the exact acreage, but uh, it would probably be about another third of snow trails size. Have you had conversations with them? Um, way back in the day when things were rocking and rolling, they made a... Uh, I guess an offer that was a bit ridiculous. So we just uh, just sat back and said, no, thank you, but appreciate it. And uh, so we'll see if we, you know, things change. Um, this is probably not the best time to, to be delving into real estate. <laughs> <laughs> so in the meantime, we're, we're doing well with what we have. And, you know, I think we're pretty manageable at how we're doing it. You know, one thing I was really surprised to see, Scott, when I looked at your trail map, you have at least three glades on your trail map, Mount Mansfield Glade, Upper Glade, and Rustler Glade. This is, I, I think you might be the only ski area in the lower Midwest to have some kind of feature. What's the story behind those trails and how often do you actually get to use them? Um, you know, it's interesting. We started, we had one originally, I believe it was over in our, it just started with, uh, we were clearing some areas for some crossovers and started uh, clearing out area and uh, so now kids were wasn't even a marked trail or glades and the, we were amazed at how many kids would be <laughs> bombing through these woods and stuff and it was like oh yeah let's just go ahead and get in there and clear some more stuff up and open it up and then we said well we got some areas down here and we just kept kept opening them up and uh, yeah um, 
when the when the natural snow comes, they're they're awesome. But uh, unfortunately, you can't control the fall of uh, snowmaking. So a lot of times, it it just happens that you know the winds and so forth take it in there, and it's uh, it's open quite a bit during the season. It's pretty neat. Oh, really? How much snow do you get there in an average season? Oh boy, it seems like we're you know we I think in our literature I think we say we'd average fifty inches. But it seems like in the last couple of years, it's been 30 inches. It, it, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting for Ohio. It's, you know, it, it, it seems hit or miss, but your elevation must help a little bit. I'm really curious about this, Scott. You know, you've been there for a few decades now. And you mentioned that you've had a little less snow in the in the most recent winters. Have have you noticed winters becoming less predictable at snow trails or has has winter in Ohio always been a little bit of a of an unpredictable monster? Yeah, I think it's always been unpredictable. Um, it, I don't know. It's it seems like, and you talk to everybody, and I guess there's no. I'm sure there's facts on it that the winters are milder. I don't. You know, we say, well, I remember when you know snow was up to our butt, and well, we were also two feet tall. Um, mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's very unpredictable, and uh, it seems like, I don't know if it's almost like a shift in seasonality, like winters start later, but hang on longer. I know it's kind of a strange thing, and uh, yeah, it's it seems a little milder, and again, I don't know, certainly everybody's on, not everybody's on it, but uh, the climate change thing, sure we affect it, but uh, I don't know, is it cyclical, you know? You know, we go for ice ages to everything else. I don't know where we're at in this cycle. And it just seems very cyclical. And, um, you know, the La Ninas and the El Ninos, they certainly play a role in it. And, uh, yeah, very, very, very lot of factors playing into the whole thing. One thing that I think is not discussed often enough, Scott, is, is in the context of climate change, it, usually the focus is on the changing seasons. What is, is typically not discussed is, the growing resilience that ski areas themselves are building to variable climates with snowmaking technology and how good that technology has gotten and how sort of very targeted, as you mentioned earlier, you're making snow any open window you have in November, how this sort of targeted strategy can help you farm and, and store snow for when you actually are able to open. So just talk a little bit about how the technology has grown over your tenure and how good it is now, because I think that ski areas like snow trails and like the ski areas in the Poconos or in Indiana, that don't get that much snow, but do get cold enough to make it. I think they're really modeling how the ski industry can be resilient in the face of a changing climate, whatever it brings in the coming decades. So just talk about that technology piece of it a little bit and, and, and how you've been able to build, uh, to winterproof the hill to, to the extent that you can. Yeah. Um, again, that we're in the ski business, we're in the snow business. And I think you kind of tapped on I, my, uh, I guess my Instagram name is snow farmer. Okay. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think we're all very much farmers relying on weather, but, uh, you know, I look at pictures from back in the day and you can just see how primitive 
the snowmaking was. They looked literally like large faucets just, you know, spraying snow out and weren't even off, the, you know, more than a foot off the ground. It's interesting and pipe above ground. And, uh, you know, now the technology's come so far. Uh, we use um, snowmaking machines, uh, SMIs. Um, and uh, I think every year since I've been here, I've purchased or tried to get three to four guns. So I think our fleet will be just over 70 by the time we're done this season. We've got some more coming. And uh, we've added now uh, last year our fifth pump in our pump house. So each of them doing uh, 1,100 gallons a minute. Um, as we've talked on a little bit, uh, we have this aquifer that hopefully just keeps on producing. Um, we keep adding wells, um, higher, you know, I think we're up to seven or eight wells now on the property. Um, some of them for snowmaking alone. Um, we just know that that's what you have to do. Those, those windows to make snow either to get open or as we call it recovery time when you have the, the January thaw and it's just paramount for our industry. So we just don't let up when it comes to the snowmaking aspects of it. As far as the technology goes, when I mean, you obviously be incre- increasing the volume of your infrastructure, but when you look at the technology itself, uh, what temperature, what's the highest temperature you can make snow in? And, and has that number changed over the course of your tenure there, were you able to make snow in more marginal conditions with the new technology? Well, uh, interestingly enough, so, you know, everybody knows in the industry, uh, 28 degrees wet bulb is the, I guess, the minimum you want to be at as far as temperature or the, the, high, the low, as high as you want it to be. Um, anything below that is bonus time. Um, we added in 2011 a cooling tower. So um, groundwater basically is in 50 degree range, 54, I forget the exact number when it comes out of the ground. Um, So we run it through this cooling tower and can drop the temperature of that water about 12 degrees to 15 degrees. And then uh, again, take some chances with making some, I guess, marginal temperatures make get up into the, you know, a little bit higher on the wet bulb side of things. Um, our guys have been at it for a long time. A lot of pride in their quality of snow, not just quantity. So we let some opportunities go by just because we want to make the best snow. I think people recognize that, you know, condition wise. I know there's others who probably just pound it, whatever, whenever, and uh, it's, it's white and that's where they stand, and that's not our, not our philosophy. So it's it's a, again, everything's such a balance between when and how and how much, and tough calls sometimes. All right, Scott. Last question for you today. Anything new on the way for the 2022 to 23 ski season? When skiers show up, it's snow trails. Hopefully in early December. Um. You know, we always look at it with, the, I always talk with the marketing guy and we always love the sexy stuff to show. <laughs> yeah. Um, this year, probably our big thing was uh, we've got a new Piston Bully Park 400 on order cool. Oh, cool. to add to the fleet. So that's super cool there. 
um, just a lot of behind the scenes stuff that uh, people don't really see uh, replacing that infamous uh, underground snowmaking pipe. Um, we're putting, like I said, the hydraulic tensioner on the uh, Alpine chair. Um, you know, always, always things to add to. Um, we take a lot of pride in the, the, the facility itself. So it's always got remodeling going on, uh, our guest services counters getting all redone, more parking lot paving, mm, uh, nice. which is always a, a big thing for uh, areas yeah. like ours to try and avoid the, the, the muddy trek to the car. Yep. Um, just, uh, yeah, just a lot of things going on. And again, none of that real sexy stuff that we like to talk about, but uh, it's necessary in our business. Do you guys have RFID there or have you considered it? Uh, we do not. And we constantly discuss it. Um, yeah. Still, you know, see a lot of good things at the shows, access and a few of those folks. So it's on the radar. And the last time we looked at it, it was pretty cost prohibitive. But I think things are, you know, technology wise or moving at rapid, rapid paces. And I think it's coming down. So it's definitely on the radar. All right, Scott. Well, I thank you very much for your time today. This was awesome. Love talking Midwest skiing and really excited for the future of snow trails. And, and it sounds like the family is uh, committed on top of it and, and really excited to run it for the future. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate all you guys do and you and Matt then out there, you know, promoting the Midwest and all skiing. And it's a, you know, it's an awesome thing that you guys are doing too. So like to keep up and follow you guys. Love it. And hopefully I can make it out to snow trails and get to know the place myself soon. That would be awesome if you could pay us a visit. Love to have you. That's Scott Chrislip, general manager of snow trails, Ohio. How about that? A lot of candor there when he talked about legitimate fear when Vale rolled into town three years ago. This season proved that snow trails has absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Look, I'm not trying to make this whole thing about Vail. And anyone who's read the newsletter for more than five paragraphs knows that I'm not here to crack on Vail. That's not what I'm about. Vail gets a lot right, and I say that all the time. But they really let a lot of people down in Ohio and throughout the Midwest this past year, and they can and should do better. Snow Trails just schooled the Goliath, and Vail Resorts needs to learn from that. And they will. Thank you so much, Scott, for sharing all of that with us, and thank you all for listening. This is the 100th episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast. That's 88 regular-style podcasts and 12 COVID-specific episodes that are recorded mostly at the start of the pandemic in 2020. I know some of you have listened to them all, if so, that is amazing. I cannot thank you enough. Please drop me a note at skiing at substack.com to let me know how you find the storm and why you stuck with it. I also want to take this opportunity to thank my wife, Patricia, who is the editor on all 100 of those podcasts and who has the technical know-how, the patience, and gives me all the support to make the storm a reality. But 
The pod is nowhere near done. In fact, I am just getting started. June is going to be a huge month on the pod. Got a good one on the way next. One I actually just booked, so this is brand new. Mountain High and Dodge Ridge owner, Carl Kapaschinski. After that, I will have conversations with Snow Operating CEO, Joe Hessian, and Chief Operating Officer of Vail Resorts West Region, Bill Rock. Then, the general managers of Perfect North Indiana, and I know some of you have been waiting a long, long time for this one, Gore Mountain, New York. Lots scheduled after that through the end of the year, including episodes featuring the leaders of Bogus Basin. Here's a new one for you. Mount Hood Meadows, just booked that. Sun Valley, Brundage, Monarch, Sundance, Vale Mountain, Nubs Knob, Bromley, Pat's Peak, and Boyne Resorts CEO Stephen Kircher will make his third appearance on the storm. You are going to want to get in on that. Paid email subscribers get the podcasts three days before free subscribers. Sign up for the free or paid email list at stormskiing.com. Also, please follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.